Hello, and welcome to Social Design Insights, the weekly podcast that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, art, and whoever else we can find who's out there trying to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Eric Kessel. Last week, we're speaking with Maggie Stevenson of UN Habitat about strategies for more humane reconstruction after disasters, how to step outside the echo chamber of your peers, and generally about how to make useful noise about change. Truly an inspiring interview. You can find it and all of our past episodes on our website at socialdesigninsights.com. This week, we're wrapping up our segment, trying to figure out whether resilience is still relevant, and are joined by someone who has always been an inspiration to me. Marcin Jakubowski is the founder of Open Source Ecology and a 2017 Curry Stone Social Design Circle honoree. Marcin has been recognized on the Enrich list and gained the distinctions of a 2012 TED Senior Fellow, a 2013 Shuttleworth Foundation Fellow, and a 2013 White House Champion of Change. Open Source Ecology's flagship project, the Global Village Construction Set, was recognized as one of Time Magazine's best inventions of 2012. So what does any of this have to do with disaster? Well, nothing directly, and that's kind of the point. Marchant's work is really about giving people the power to adapt to a changing world. Whether you're facing the threat of desertification or earthquakes or merely economic strangulation, Marchant's work is universally adaptable. It's about channeling the human spirit at the level of an individual and at the level of a community and allowing it to make things that we need and to build the world that we need to live in. After this segment, I got to thinking that that's what this has all been about. Humans are fundamentally resilient, and communities tend to be the same. It's only when that power is stripped away from those people and those communities that we see them unable to address their own vulnerabilities. Marchant's story is one we can all learn from. He's just a guy who started looking at simple problems, like how to keep weeds out of his farm, and ended up creating tools that the whole world could use. If we could all do the same, I'm thinking that the world would fix itself right up, right quick. But now I'm showing my optimism, and I want to let Marchant handle that part. So let's get to the interview. Marchant, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Marchant, I, I know you've told the story uh, uh, a number of times, and it features heavily in, in your TED Talk and other lectures, but it's such a compelling origin story, how you came to do what you do. Do you think you could mm-hmm. walk our listeners through it and, and take us back to, to your PhD days and, and how you came to found Open Source Ecology? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So for as long as I could think, I was thinking about the power of science and technology to do good things for humankind. And it turned out the farther I went in my education up to the PhD level, the more useless I, I began to feel <laughs> regarding my potential impact because we were t- starting to talk about things that do not even exist. I studied fusion energy. I started in chemistry, undergrad, then went to grad school. My interest was renewable energy and, and new energy sources, and I thought fusion might be that. But the farther I went into it, you know, people were, you know, we were in our lectures or classes and seminars, and it gets to the point where people talk about things that do not exist. Like one time, for example, I had a class on some wave propagation in space, part of the PhD physics curriculum, and I came to see it, the professor saying, well, what, what does this really look like in practice? I had questions about this long equation. And then he told me, well, it actually doesn't exist. I just made it up. So <laughs> at that point, I was like, hey, what are we doing here? I mean, there are real tangible issues in the world that we could be solving, and yet we are 
not really doing that. So, so definitely a feeling of alienation. And also the fact that I could actually not talk openly about the research work that I was doing to other people and other universities. Tell me about that. Well, we had uh, hot material, some cutting-edge research. And, of course, people are competing for grants. So I was not allowed simply to disclose what I was working on. And I felt, man, what a waste. I mean, this is academia. We're supposed to be open, and it's supposed to be about open learning and benefiting all humankind with good technology, and then sadly disappointed. So, so I was, I got totally alienated from my PhD studies. I started doing more independent study on renewable energy, reading books like Gandhi and Schumacher, Buckminster Fuller, getting into regenerative design, studying all kinds of stuff that you know, almost getting kicked out of the PhD program a couple of times, and I had to, of course, focus <laughs> focus back and get roped back in to, to eventually make it and actually make it with decent honors, publishing some decent papers. But, yeah, as soon as I left, I said, okay, I'm out of there. I am out into experimenting what it would really mean to, to make a better world. Yeah, so you went in a, in a very different direction after your PhD. Indeed. So, so right after getting the PhD in Madison, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, I got out onto a five-acre parcel on the outskirts of Madison and began to farm. And I learned about things like weeds and equipment, that weeds will take over your crops and that you actually need appropriate equipment, which actually does not really exist for the small scale to make any sense out of small-scale agriculture. So, And that got me thinking about appropriate technology in practice and eventually to, to designing open source agriculture and other equipment, which was missing. And, you know, what was interesting and what I've always found compelling about your narrative is, you know, starting from a simple problem like that, like, you know, how do we deal with the weeds on my five acre farm? It grew into a vision which is completely global and, and, and world altering, I think. Tell us about the Global Village construction set and how that grew out of those early experiments. Yeah. So it actually started with a brick press. After the Madison stint, we went down. So myself and my partner rolled down to Missouri uh, where we had some friends and settled on a, like a 20-acre parcel of land, then actually ended up getting our own land. But the idea there was we came with pretty much a Suburban, some chickens, a, a tra an old tractor <laughs> onto this 30-acre farm. And the first thing we needed was actually to build housing, and, and we did natural building, which you know broke our backs. You know, And as, as we were building that, just basic shelter, natural building, I was thinking, wow, this is really hard work. I could really use some equipment to help me along with that. So that's where the thoughts about the compressed earth block press came about, which is the first machine that we actually designed. So there we built that, started building houses with that, and then pretty soon my tractor broke, as you saw in the TED Talk, and I paid 2000 to get it repaired, then it broke again, as you heard. And I said, wow, this is not sustainable. So that's when the first seeds of the concept, okay, well, we need to nail this appropriate technology for open source, for a modern standard of living, which is applicable not just in the developing world, but uh, for anybody trying to do a small business, an enterprise, a farm, making parts or producing energy or whatever. Uh, we need the actual tools that are not the huge scale or just designed for failure, kind of expensive where parts cost you a lot or or like with today's tractors where you cannot even touch the electronics of it because it voids the warranty or whatever. So the quest was for open source appropriate technology that was born out of, the, out of the early experiences with the brick press and the tractor to the point that I said, okay, well, let's define the 50 most important 
industrial tools that we use every day, whether we know it or not, your tractors, your production machinery, renewable energy equipment, and said, okay, let's define that and just build it so that everyone has access to that and we are not limited by material scarcity or production or efficient production as one of the limiting factors for what anyone can do to make a better life for themselves. You know, one of the terms you use a lot is artificial scarcity. And thinking about this tractor problem, uh, tractors are extremely expensive and they're not necessarily available to all the people that need to farm at the scales that they need to farm. And it's, in, in some respects, a market aberration. Like, the term artificial scarcity is, is made a certain amount of empirical sense to me, but what does it actually mean? To understand that concept, we have to start with the fact that there is 10,000 times more power that comes from the sun to the earth than we currently use, even with our somewhat wasteful economy. So if you have access to energy, which we do, then you can transform natural resources into the life stuff of modern civilization. Now, there is abundant energy and materials are also abundant, but yet the economy that we live in makes them scarce and artificially so. The idea is that there are plenty of material resources and energy resources, but the distribution of that is not, not equal. So certainly the huge question of how wealth is distributed throughout the population is an outstanding issue that today's economy has not solved. Uh, today's economy still concentrates wealth, and that's the huge issue that we're trying to address uh, by making blueprints, designs, practices, techniques available to everybody so that everybody can rise to a, a higher playing field. You know, we, we, we spent so much of the 20th century, Marchand, being indoctrinated into the idea that, you know, bigger is better and that there are these economies of scale and that, you know, we can actually feed, you know, more people with highly industrialized farming and that sort of thing. How do you, through your work, push back against that sort of criticism? There's two sides. So one is agriculture, one is technology. And for the technology side, we can talk about open source microfactories, which using uh, the Fab Lab concept, but the concept of open source design, open source microfactories with open source machinery, uh, and which, which is digital fabrication. So today we have access to computer controlled machinery for production, which we can, that's called digital fabrication, like the Fab Labs concept. But we have access to that today. And we have unprecedented prowess on a small scale to do today in like a, say, a 4,000 square foot facility like we have to do that, which was done in huge mega factories of yesterday. So with the increasing technology, we can do a lot on a small scale. And the key to that is open source design. Design, if that were available for various advanced products, you can definitely compete with uh, the industrial production. And that's exactly what we're trying to demonstrate and we haven't succeeded at that yet. I mean, we have shown many, many prototypes. You know, like the tractor, for example, it's not a product. It's still pretty much at the project stage where we haven't taken it completely to market, but that's one of the things we're doing. But the idea is if you actually go through the numbers and some of the, the milestones that we have achieved, we have achieved what's what we call extreme manufacturing, which is the idea that you swarm, build, and such that we can build our tractor in a single day or the brick press in a single day or... A 1,400 square foot seed eco-home in five days with 50 people. So we're developing social production techniques 
where we are really breaking the limits of what can be done on a small scale in microfactory context. If you actually go through the numbers, like for example, Mahindra and Mahindra is the largest tractor manufacturer in the world, uh, M&M tractors from India. We can look at the numbers and how, how many man hours it takes to produce their tractor, and we can look at ours, and we can actually compete with that and actually do better. So if, really? you, if you look at the details, yes, indeed. And so we've, we've shown things like that, and that's why we are so excited about uh, to get an attraction to really change the world with this. But, of course, that takes a lot of work and the transition from vision to execution. So that's, that's where we're at. But, and maybe just to summarize on the, the agriculture side, well, I mean, clearly, local agriculture with some automation, uh, with small-scale appropriate modern technology can do what the mega farms are doing today without the damage. Like the damage is that we're completely depleting soils and now soils are completely dependent upon chemicals and fertilizers to make them any productive because they've killed off all the life. So for that, of course, we say, okay, small-scale perennial polycultures, richly diverse ecosystems that are producing many crops, and you can then add the automated agriculture equipment, your drone tractors and even aerial drones or whatever. So that kind of technology we would like to bring to the small scale to show that you can do that. Uh, it's about horsepower. We have engines on a small scale. If they're autonomous machines, then the scale of operations can also decrease significantly and become more integrated and varied as you put in more computer control or, or just the artificial intelligence into those systems and based on mimicking natural ecosystems. But all of this, you know, we can talk about this forever. You know, Google and, you know, John Deere, they're developing autonomous tractors and all kinds of this stuff. What we're calling out for is simply that some of that technology gets dispersed out into the public so that we don't have further concentration of wealth, but everyone has access to that for a more balanced ecosystem and more balanced social systems around the world. You know, after news of your work started to spread, a kind of hub grew up around you. And, you know, makers from all over the world, uh, as I understand it, started coming to your farm in Missouri. For our listeners, wh- what is what is that place like? Give us a sense of, of what it's like to live and work on this farm. Yeah, so it's a 30 acres that started from a raw soybean field. We've got 10 years of building, and but we've got a workshop, a living unit, several other buildings but it's an experimental facility. Uh, our goal is to create a world-class campus for research and development. We're working on that. It's a slow journey. We've got some infrastructure here. So we had people do things like summer internships, dedicated project visits, and now we took it to the next step, which is our immersion program, a five-week long on-site immersion for people who are replicating OSE work to other locations, actually uh, three people from Utah and California that were actually doing the immersion fellowship program that's happening right now, actually, in the last we're the last week coming up next week. But the idea is to get the facility to full year-round operation, and and it's still very rough, and you know to keep the expectations proper. You know we're we're prototyping in a workshop. The living arrangements are still somewhat rough. I mean, you know, it's it's basic, but it's like camping with power tools. But we're working on <laughs> that sounds awesome, we're working, though. <laughs> yeah, but we're, we're working on getting this to just uh, building another workshop, improving the living facilities. Like right now, we just put in in-ground hydronic heating to the Hab Lab, it's called, our habitation lab. We're opening that up for year-round operations. So we're trying to, to get to the full year-round so we can offer regular programs year-round. Now, the idea, if, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that 
people who come to this five-week immersion program could subsequently go off and start their own kind of facility. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, uh, not, maybe not facility because we don't teach all of that, but right now we're at the level of the open source microfactory, and that's been primarily focused on the 3D printer. And then we also are building, next week we're building the filament maker and plastic shredder. So a basic plastic recycling infrastructure. So the concept is this is actually the first time ever that we held immersion training. The people are going off to actually work full-time with OSE as OSE fellows. There's also another one person who's going off on their own to essentially be a remote collaborator and creating an enterprise around the 3D printer builds. So what we have right now are one-day extreme builds where you build and take a 3D printer home with you in a single-day build and two-day teaching workshops for librarians and teachers where we go through a more in-depth thing about how you can also design things in open source software so you can basically get ready for producing different real useful objects. And then we're also, just the third thing that we're actually, we've been bashing that in and out actually was, a, it's actually a retreat where it's a like a two-day retreat for people who are in the mainstream world but looking to get their hands on hands dirty and actually building and designing things building that experience around a 3d printer now there's a strategic reason for that so next spring so we're going to have the immersion programs every six months and next spring we're getting into the heavy machines and the cnc torch table so right now we start with a so-called desktop microfactory concepts next spring we're going into heavy fabrication so things like the cnc torch table i can now build the the brick press or the tractors but yeah, this is where, you know, we're pretty much getting to have figured out a revenue model that works. So what's been working for us is the idea of running immersion training workshops, which we call the extreme manufacturing. Those immersion builds where people pay for the experience and there could be a product that comes out of it, such as building a brick press that we can sell or a tractor that we can sell uh, or a house that we build for somebody else. So those are all the products that we're currently developing and right now, training people to do that because ourselves on 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 site, we're only two full-time people. The goal right now is to build capacity. We're training people to take this to other locations around the world. You're listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. We hope you've been enjoying these thoughts from Marcin Jakubowski of Open Source Ecology about this remarkable farm that he started. I'm going to take a quick break and fill out my own application. But don't anyone go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Social Design Insights after the break. Social Design Insights. We've been speaking with Marcin Jakubowski of Open Source Ecology, and coming up, we're going to be talking about integrated humans, transformation economies, and a whole bunch of other terms that you really need to know if you're going to design a better world. Let's rejoin the conversation already in progress. This sounds like uh, you know a program that a lot of our listeners would be interested in. What is what's the application process? How do we get there? So the application is a full application process, uh, submitting your application and then interview, various steps of standard recruiting. 
the idea there is that it's uh, there's a fee for the the immersion program, and then we hire uh, people successfully completed, meaning basically showing the proficiency of being able to either do like the build of the 3D printer, or subsequently for like the work on a torch table and so forth. Once people make it through the program, we hire them, and we've we're like for example for this batch of the first ever program. We're giving a stipend of $3,000 per month for the people that complete that with the requirement that we run some workshops to actually bootstrap fund the operation. The ideal situation is we're spending 25% of the time running workshops and then 75% goes to further research and development. So that's the concept behind the program. Marcin, the this segment we've been asking, you know, is resilience still relevant? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you don't fancy yourself, you know, a speaker on resilience. But, you know, I thought of you in OSE just because, you know, in seeking kind of a new way to inhabit the planet, you know, you've been working on that for 10 years, yeah. you know, developing systems where, you know, we're not dependent on these highly leveraged systems of debt and manufacturing and, you know, these kind of uh, hyper-precise, hyper-tuned systems that, that seem to collapse, right? Um, and right. it's not just about natural disasters. It's about sociological ones and, and cultural ones as well. Am I correct in reading that, that this is, uh, you know, beyond the sort of like technological and agricultural aspects of it, it's really about empowerment and giving people the means and the tools to, to live in their environment and to, to cooperate with a changing world? Oh, absolutely. The open source ecology is the integration of natural and human ecosystems to make a systems-based package that works. So applications are everywhere. We do have a 20-year roadmap, and actually... The idea here is, so now being kind of realistic, we think it's going to take 10 more years to, to build out all the tools. But at that point, we're moving on much more to the actually human development because we don't believe it's that we need new technology. It's that we need to make better humans because that's the missing part of the equation. Well, the technology of today has far outstripped our human capacity to deal with it. While technology is needed, it needs to be open source, distributed, and accessible, which is what we're working on. Uh, that's the frontier we need to nail within the next decade. And after that, we're going to be working on other areas, specifically human development. So our psychology, our education, how do you actually become an integrated human who can be a responsible steward of the earth? Can you speak more about that, or is that far off in the future? It's far off, but I mean, we right now we do talk about the concept of, if you Google on our wiki, integrated humans. It's people who are capable of understanding technology, ecology, systems thinking, science, you know, like Heinlein's quote about specialization being for insects. We definitely value the concept of personal growth. Like, for example, just the journey itself in, in this entrepreneurship of spawning the Global Village construction set, I mean, the first thing that has to happen is for me to grow as the project grows and I'm seeing more and more how important the leadership skills and being an integrated human is in, in terms of creating the social infrastructure for this to happen. Mm -hmm. Linux has done it with a bunch of uh, very unique people like software programmers. Now we're trying to transcend, well, apply that similar model of collaborative development to hardware, which is much harder. You have to include a much more tangible and it's a much, much bigger game. But definitely skill on a human side is critical because, as we say, it's not about technology. It's about making better humans. So, so the idea here is that if we master technology such that most people's lives are not revolving around just making a living, 
just the scarcity, the, the material security that people need. If we can get beyond that, then we can truly pursue our self-determination, the things that are truly important to us. And that is, I would say, like a rebirth of humanity where people are no longer controlled by you know, the carrot on a stick or just making a living. The statistics are 50% of the people in the U.S. hate their jobs. You know, how can you have a, a wholesome system when that's the case? So we really pay attention to that and definitely say that we like technology, but we definitely see that it's much more than that. It's about making better people. That is absolutely beautiful. Thank you. We always like to close on optimism here on Social Design Insights. So thank you for that as, as well. And, you know, I hope our, our listeners really take it to heart in terms of understanding that there's, there's work to be done. And it doesn't all have to be patented. It doesn't all have to be slick. In many ways, you know, Mother Nature has always been the best designer, you know, and, and working with her instead of against her is good design. Yeah. Yep. Tell us a little bit about how you operationalize. I mean, how do you kind of create a working business model around these values? So given that our, all our information and designs are open source, how do we make money? Well, we still can produce things. Uh, we, we are actually adding value upon the open information in the form of, of workshops. So you can sign up, for example, to, to build something like a brick press or a tractor in our immersion build events. So we've done that uh, historically. So, so for example, just to give you an example, if we host a 3D printer build workshop, say 12 people show up, we build 12 3D printers in a single day, people pay $300 above the bill of materials, so we can generate like $3,600 of revenue in a day workshop. But the model where we're charging people for both a product and an experience, that, that we found out works for us, such as, for example, a, a build workshop of the Brick Press, which is a weekend, people pay a few hundred bucks for that. For example, in one event, we made $5,000 from tuition, and we, then we sold the machine for another $5,000. So, so there's a revenue model that works. Uh, when we build the CD Eco Home, which is some of the workshops that are a lot of people are interested in, Aquapana Greenhouse, CD Eco Home, um, there we have the concept that people sign up for like a five-day build. And in those workshops, with 50 people signing up, we were able to, to generate like $25,000 of revenue for that one-week workshop. So, so the model of creating an immersion experience. So we're, we are in the experience economy and that's kind of what we're selling. Now, th just to note like what the latest trends in economic development are. So there's now we're shifting from the information economy to the experience economy where people want to get experiences, uh, training experience, viruses type, virus types of experience. And then if you read about that further, you hear about, wow, now there's the transformation economy. Hmm. where people then pay you for you to transform them. And that's hmm. actually where, where we're going with this, because once we develop more of the machines and, and, and better immersion experiences, you cannot help but walk out of our experience being pretty transformed as far as showing to yourself that, oh, wow, you could build these amazing things with a group of people that you can be taught in a rapid fashion. So that's kind of the direction where we're going developing an open source technology, running workshops around it. And that's why we're inviting open collaboration to take all these products. We think that all the 50 different machines can be built in rapid times using our swarm build process where a bunch of people get together, work in parallel on all the different modules of the build. And then the thing comes rapidly into place in a final assembly. And that's a, that's a great social bonding, education, community building experience that we're, we're delivering. 
Yeah, and I've always admired that about your work. I mean, it's yes, it's about you know making tractors and brick presses, but it's also about making community and making experiences. And you know, as you were speaking, I was kind of thinking like, yes, they're getting that experience. They're also getting the capability to take that back to wherever they're from. And potentially teach others, or if not specifically teach others, at least you know teach the gospel of open source and uh, harmony with environment and that sort of thing. Right. There's been a bunch of ambassadors that came out of our work. I mean, people who talk about our work, but for the reason that we find it's actually very hard for somebody to gain the skills and actually start a business themselves. For which reason, exactly, we started the immersion program. So we're starting with a five weeks, where the explicit goal is for somebody to take the the work and actually. Uh, generate a livelihood of that because at the end of the day it's who pays you how are you making your living that's yeah. super critical and that's the point we're trying to address and the, the idea is so so it's a pitch for our immersion program in the sense that if you'd like to do this work full time and it's going to be hard it's a steep learning curve up front but if you're up for that challenge that's who we're inviting to join our team and, and get the immersion training that's excellent, and we'll do everything we can to to kind of spread the word about that as an opportunity. What's what's the application cycle? I mean, uh, you're just finishing your inaugural class. Uh, when's the next one? Probably going to be about three months before we put up the next uh, next application. But uh, we were thinking about like probably like last week of April that we will start, and we'll we'll throw up the announcement three or four months before that. It sounds like an amazing program, and I was only half kidding about coming to join you. I, I have too many jobs already, so probably can't, but sounds like an amazing experience, and uh, I can't wait to, to promote it to our listeners. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. I'd like to thank my guest of the week, Marcin Jakubowski of Open Source Ecology, for his stunning vision about the future and how we can all evolve to take on the great challenges facing humanity. We're going to be taking a two-week break from Social Design Insights and give ourselves a pause to reflect on all that we've learned in this past segment about resilience and how to think about it. We have some big stuff coming up in quarter four. Over the last two years, we've heard a lot of questions about how to do social design, like the nuts and bolts part of it. So we'll be talking with a lot of big brains and asking them, who designs the designers? To learn more about Marchin and the great work of open source ecology, please visit our website at currystonefoundation.org. There you'll find links to talks, photos, and hopefully a little inspiration. If you have any feedback on the show, ideas for guests, or just want to chat, you can always write to me at eric at socialdesigninsights.com. That's E-R-I-C at socialdesigninsights.com. Social Design Insights is produced by Baruch Zeichner, and at the break, the music was taking me back to my school days. You were listening to East St. Louis Toodaloo by Steely Dan, from their album, Pretzel Logic. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation, and if you haven't already, please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Curry Stone FDN for all the latest news on social impact design.